Open up to, uh, to Exodus chapter, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I told us last week that just as the, the, uh, the Jews spent three days at the bottom of Mount Sinai waiting for God to arrive before he gave them the most holy Ten Commandments, so also we're going to take three weeks preparing ourselves theologically, preparing ourselves biblically, and I hope also preparing ourselves in our heart before we then start taking the Ten Commandments, one commandment a week, and seeing, how, seeing what God has commanded to us in Exodus chapter 20. But we saw last week the, the scenery of God's arrival onto Mount Sinai. When he, he didn't just speak the law, which was fearful and amazing and transcendent and holy enough, the, the actual commandments of the law, but he also, through the, through the scenery of his arrival and giving the law, communicated essential things about him and his law. That is, that last week we saw that the law is personal because it's a personal God revealing himself through it. That the law is transcendent and, and, and coming to us from above because God is a transcendent God. He's not like one of us. And yet the law is condescending. And that it is a blessing and commandments that find their reality in true real life just as God condescends from his infinite superiority in order to speak to us and lead us as our God. Today we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 19 and then the first two verses of chapter 20. Chapter 19 of the book of Exodus reads like this. On the new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Go to chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. This is just before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. As we study the law, last week we looked at the giving of the law and what it told us about God. Today we're studying how the law should be understood in terms of covenant. We'll try and make it lively and exciting. And next week we're going to ask, what are the three uses of the law of God the, the, that, we, that we saw picked up on in the Reformation and taught since then? But this week, we want to get some foundations to understand what the purpose and application of Old Testament law is. Now, now we have to ask that question first. What is the purpose 
of the law that God gave in what we call the Sinai Covenant. Now, no gold stars, if you can guess why it's called the Sinai Covenant. It's sometimes also called the Mosaic Covenant after Moses. It's because it's given at Sinai, and it's given through Moses. And these are the laws that that basically, if we just use the phrase Old Testament law, that's a pretty all-encapsulating term. And we mean all of the laws of the, the, the God spoke through Moses at Sinai in the Pentateuch, in, 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 in uh, anywhere from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And so from Exodus, uh, sorry, from Sinai onwards, we have the Sinai covenant given. And the question we need to ask is, what was the purpose of it? Because once you understand the purpose of something, then you can understand its scope and how far it reaches and what its limits are. So the Old Testament law, this might be totally new for some of us, bread and butter 101 stuff for others. But the Old Testament law of God was given to Israel as a nation to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, until what Acts calls the time of reformation. The time of restoration, picked up also in the language of Hebrews. That that the Israelite nation was not an end in and of themselves. The law God gave them was not the ultimate goal of his existence, but rather bringing Jesus into the world, through a people, into a nation, and fulfilling all sorts of prophecies. That was his ultimate plan. And he did that. And so the law that he gave to the old covenant nation of Israel was to prepare the way for the Messiah in and through the people of Israel. Now that gives us, as soon as we understand the purpose of the law, that already gives us a who, when, and where of the application of Old Testament law. That is the who. Who does this apply to? Who did God hold accountable and, and, and make binding his law given through Moses at Sinai? And it's quite simple. It's the people of God, the Israelites, which he just said in, uh, in, about, in verse 4 and 5. When he's, uh, verse 5, he says, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, he's making a covenant with them, not others, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. He's making a distinction. He's saying there's lots of nations. They all belong to me, but you will be my people with my law. So that's the who. But also the where matters. Because what we see in the, in the Pentateuch is that God, God, God connects the, the land, the physical land of Israel, the promised land that God promised to Abraham. He promises that all of his law is connected to that land. And so the, this, is, this is not simply wherever a Jew could go, wherever in the world. There he carried the Torah to apply to whoever he saw. But this was God's people in God's land until the time of Jesus. That's the when. That, that, that as soon as Jesus came, he started to fulfill and do away with certain laws. That in his resurrection, what God commands uh, the, the Israelites to have been binding forever changes. The Old Testament law of God was for Israel, in Israel, until Jesus. Lay that as the foundation for your understanding and reading and applying and thinking about and praying any part of Old Testament law. So what is the context? When God gives his Old Testament law to his people, in fact, we can say whenever God gives law to any people, it is always in the context of this beautiful $100 word in the Bible, covenant. God does not deal with anybody 
outside of the terms of a covenant. We'll look more into this next week. God is always in covenant with every image bearer he has ever made. Even if some people are in additional covenants and some people are only in in one covenant by nature. And and here we find that the Israelites are already in covenant with God in the sense that they're created by him, responsible to him, law of God written on their hearts. And yet now they enter into a further covenant which God defines and limits by laws. God's law in the Old Testament is given in the context of a covenant. We see it literally in verse 5 there. He says to them that they are keeping his covenant for blessing. We also see it just in the whole structure of of this section of the book of Exodus. There's There's ancient treaties or covenants that used to be made between a, a, a conquering or powerful king. Uh, let's say you belong to a smaller vassal state and you were conquered by another king. Your army lay dead in the field and he comes knocking on your gates. Or in another circumstance, maybe, maybe an enemy king is coming and you write a letter to the other powerful king and say, can you come help us? We'll owe you anything. Just, just let us live. And what would happen is that the victorious king would make a covenant. They would enter into a treaty with the, the vassal state, with the subordinate nation, and, the, and it would uh, involve certain important elements that are almost universal over the ancient world. <clears throat> and as long as they abided by his requirements, they would be blessed with his protection and his provision. And the elements of those old treaties or covenants were as follows. There would be an identification The king would say, my name is king something of this land, son of this, king over the earth, whatever they would say. Then they would recap their history. They would say, you were in need and I came to help you and this this is our relationship as of this far. And then they would give requirements. You must do this. These are my requirements for you. This is what I expect of you. And then they would put it down in a, into a written document so that each, each member of the treaty can have a version of the written document and covenant. And then they give sanctions. Basically is to say, now, if you abide by this written covenant that you've agreed to, if you abide by it, there will be blessings. Here's what I'll do for you. And if you dare break it, there will be curses. I will come upon you. I will destroy you. I will burn down your gates. There were blessings. And there was Curses, what we call sanctions. And what we see in Exodus from chapter 19 onwards is this formula for a covenant to a T. First of all, we see God introduce himself the way he he speaks in chapter 20, just before he gives his law. I am the Lord your God. That's number one, the identification of the superior party. And then there's the second part, when they recap their history, which, which God does in chapter 20, verse 2. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery? Or, or as we see in chapter 19, verse 4, you yourselves saw what I did when I destroyed the Egyptians, but I brought you as on wings of eagles. So he identifies himself, he recaps the history together, and then he gives requirements in the form of his laws and his commandments. And then afterwards, in, verse, in chapter 24, we see that he is commanded by God to write this all down in a document. And then after that, we see all throughout Exodus and all throughout the other books of the, of the Pentateuch and God's giving of the Sinai law, we see blessings and curses held out to the Israelite people depending on their obedience or their disobedience. 
So, so as we understand the law of God, the Old Testament law, we must understand this is a covenant between a certain people and God who has enacted a treaty with them as the superior king who came to their aid. The Old Covenant law, therefore, in a broad and sweeping term, we can say this. The Old Covenant law, in as much as it is Old Covenant law, does not bind us. You try and argue that, you have to make the case that you are under the Old Covenant, and good luck with that. Got a pair of scissors, got some nice hats for you to wear, there's, there's a lamb waiting for you out in the car park, and there's plenty of rituals that you have to follow. Not today. The Old Covenant law, in as much as it is Old Covenant, does not apply to people in the New Covenant. Can I even say this? It doesn't even apply to people outside of the New Covenant. Because it was for a time until Jesus came, and since Jesus has now come, we see the, the speaking of Paul, we see the writing of the apostles, we, we read the book of Hebrews, and we see that this old covenant law has now expired, having completed everything God had asked it to do. It's now in retirement. Don't ask it to come back. It had a hard slog. It killed a lot of people. The Old Testament did a long 1,500-year labor, and now Christians want to try and resurrect it and get it back to work when God has allowed it to go and sit in retirement. We don't resurrect the old covenant law because the old covenant is not our covenant and therefore its law is not our law. Rather, we are in the new covenant. This great fulfillment of the covenant of grace. I'll tell you the terms of the new covenant. You sin, you trust in Jesus, you get eternal life. That's it. You, you're a sinner. You trust in Jesus. You get eternal life. What about all the obedience? Yeah, that comes later. That's a part of the eternal life. That's a part of the blessings that God gives you is you get to start obeying the law. But the con condition, what you have to do to enter this broader, glorious, more beautiful new covenant is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law, then went and died for us, who was perfect and then gave himself as a sacrifice for the imperfect. Jesus, who resurrected from the grave, now as the new Adam, the fulfilled Israel, the new king, priest, and prophet over the people of God, the new covenant is a new covenant because it's got better promises. And those promises are that if you're a sinner, regardless of your ceremonial cleanliness, your race, your background, your sins, your defilement, whatever you have done, you are welcomed into the presence of God because Jesus stands to welcome you and usher you into eternal life. That's new covenant. Our covenant is a better covenant. It has additional laws that are binding on nobody else like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and we have the book of the New Testament. 26, 27 books of the New Testament that are now our source of understanding the gospel and what we must do for obedience. Now, here's probably the question that's burning in the back of your mind, or at least I hope it is. As I say, the old covenant is not, the old covenant law is not binding on us anymore because we are not in the old covenant. Some of you will ask the question, then, then does that mean that the old testament has no relevance to us. Does that mean, like blessed teachers today, sarcasm, pretty thick on there, will say we need to unhitch the Old Testament 
away from the New Testament so that in our apologetics and sharing the gospel, we don't have to worry with the ugly questions of slavery and misogyny and murder and that sort of stuff of the Old Testament God. We can leave that behind because it's not for us. You know what? Your Bible starts at Matthew. Just stay there. Is that how we to understand that since it is not binding to us, that therefore it is not relevant to us? Not at all. If that was the case, would I be up here wasting my time preaching on Exodus? The answer is no. So if it's not applicable by binding law to us, is it at all relevant? The answer is absolutely yes. Because all scripture is still the inspired word of God that is able to point us to Jesus, uh, give us divine principles to live our life by, but the old covenant law as a system does not extend to us because that would be beyond its God-given scope. Rather, there is a way to distinguish and explain the old covenant law that helps us understand that some parts are still binding to us. Now, am I contradicting myself I hope not, and I don't think so. The answer is no. The Old Covenant law is a system not binding to us. But there are some things that are in the Old Covenant law that don't just belong to the Old Covenant law. They belong to God's law. They belong to to the natural law. They belong to everybody for all time. So the the way that we divide these up, as we study Exodus through to Deuteronomy... What we see is a very uh, intentional act by God to show some kind of distinction between three divisions of the law of God. That is that there is the moral law. This will be, this will be very important. This should be in every Christian's toolbox is the understanding of the threefold division of the law of God. That is that it starts with the moral law. And that's basically the Ten Commandments if we're looking for an easy go-to. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. The second division of law is what we call the judicial law, sometimes called the civil law. And the third is the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law, number one, the moral law is that foundational, God-given standard of righteousness which never actually had a beginning and will never have an end. For as long as God is God, the Ten Commandments will remain to be a standard of his own perfection and the requirement that he has of every human being. The Ten Commandments are the foundation stone for all of God's laws because they reveal not just how he's treating with certain groups or nations at certain times in history, Not even just how he's dealing with the church. Things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and church membership. They will pass away. The Ten Commandments will never pass away. When we speak of the judicial law, we mean the law for for Israel's nation and their judicial system under the judges. How they were to punish certain laws. What was to be done in certain circumstances. And the ceremonial law are those commandments for worship, for temple building, for sacrifices, for priesthood, etc., etc., which until Jesus come, came, would be the way to offer sacrifices to God. Now, the very simple, this makes it very simple to answer. I reckon if I handed out a, a multiple choice for everybody today with this one question, which of those three still apply to us today? I think you'd all get it right. It is the moral law. I'll answer it for you. I don't want to embarrass anybody. <clears throat> it is the moral law. And only the moral law 
The judicial law has expired, having completed its job. The ceremonial law has expired, having completed its job. And we see that that, that because the civil was tied to that nation and that land, it expired with the removal of that people from the land and the removal of that people from the central plan of of the purposes of God. The ceremonial laws were tied to the sacrifices, which are now entirely abolished because Jesus made the final sacrifice. In fact, we see this in the book of Hebrews, that both judicial law and the ceremonial laws have passed away as a binding law now because Jesus came and instituted a new covenant. He instituted a new covenant. Now, now in our minds, we think, but Jesus said, help me, help me think through this. Jesus said... I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Don't, don't even begin to think that I, I came to do that. How are we to understand this end according to the Bible's revelation and explanation? That Jesus was saying, of the judicial law that Moses handed down, don't think I came to rub that away, regret it, repent of it, and put it away. Rather, he came to be and live as the perfect Israelite and fulfill it all and then put it away. That of the ceremonial law, he didn't come down to say, you don't need to sacrifice, you don't need to obey God's Levitical commandments that are so intricate and overbearing. No, no, no. There's a better way. Let's go set up a tent in the wilderness and worship God. No, no, he fulfilled it all, honored it all, but having given the final sacrifice, finishes it all. In other words, there's no, there's no retired law of God that was retired before it finished its job. Jesus fulfilled them all, then put them to the side. He never ripped them out of their their, their application without being holy and duly fulfilled as God commanded. But the moral law, Jesus both fulfilled in his obedience and never got rid of. In fact, the Ten Commandments form the basis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he expounds on it and applies it. The Ten Commandments form, form the foundation of Jesus' own teaching and moral commandments They are also picked up and repeated by the apostles throughout the New Testament. The Ten Commandments remain our required standard of living, which we will go more into next week. Now, there's this amazing beauty of what God does with the moral law. In other words, there's a way that he sets apart the Ten Commandments. In case you're wondering, you go, I'm not sure. Is that entirely biblical to divide God's law up like this? Yes, it is. God shows very clearly that he distinguishes and and elevates the moral law in a way that he doesn't with his ceremonial and judicial law, which would end up expiring at some time. With the moral law, while Moses wrote down the judicial and ceremonial, God himself spoke out, booming from the voice of Sinai, which we're reading in this chapter and the next, God's booming voice echoed to all of the Israelite nation, the Ten Commandments, and that was all. We also see that God himself wrote the Ten Commandments by the finger of God, we're told, whereas Moses wrote the others. We see that the rest was written on parchment, but the Ten Commandments were written on stone to show its unchanging nature. We, we, see, that, we see that the rest was kept in scrolls in the, whole, in, the, in the tabernacle, but the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the very presence of God. So in everything that God does to show us that as he reveals his laws, it is obvious that the Ten Commandments are more core, they're more foundational, they are more absolute, and therefore they are perpetual, meaning they're ongoing. They never pass away. 
We even see it in the prophets and the Psalms. That as they're in an act of repentance or they're commanding people to repent, they use these phrases which, which are so cryptic if you don't understand the division of God's law appropriately. They say things like, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Instead, I have come to obey your law. And we say, isn't offerings and sacrifices a part of the law? Well, why does Samuel say obedience is better than sacrifices when sacrifices were commanded for obedience? Because there's a deeper conception than merely the question, did he command it? The deeper conception is, what is the way to truly fulfill? What is the deeper and truer, more foundational commandment of God? And he elevates the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, that which reflects his very own soul, that is deeper and truer than the judicial or ceremonial laws ever can be. This becomes extremely practical and helpful, not only because because the, the, the apostles start picking up the Ten Commandments and applying it to us, right? Obey your mother and father, do not commit adultery, don't, you know, all these sorts of things. They do that. Therefore, people and Christians who try to, we're not under the Ten Commandments. That was Old Testament. You, you just got to point out that they're at odds with the apostles and Jesus. Not a good place to be. But also, it helps us catch ourselves with false, false, I'll try that again. Not a lisper, usually. False measures of holiness. How often it is that, that, that Christians just struggling, just striving, just attempting somewhat, uh, somewhat strenuously to, to get some measure of holiness. And I know I won't eat this sort of food because at some point in the Bible, God did say it was an abomination. By doing this, I'm, I'm just a little level above what I was before. And it's, it's more than useless. That kind of thinking is in fact harmful because you're reviving a, co a covenant that is gone. Or people, whether it's dress code or whether it's, it's living situation or whether it's location, I'll, I'll go for a trip to the Holy Land and I'll get some blessing. Nope, nope, no, not outside of faith in Jesus Christ and abiding in his word. That's where the blessing is. No holy places, no holy locations, dresses, uh, clothing, uh, Food, nothing, no drink, nothing that we can touch. Paul picks up on this in Colossians. Nothing we touch, handle, see, hear, smell has any capacity to bring us closer to God unless by God's specific commandment, like the Lord's Supper and Baptism, we see that he commands us to do so. False holiness abounds because people misuse the Old Testament and try and revive just certain things, not as binding on everybody, but, but I think if I do it, I'll just get closer to God, and it's, it's foolish and it's harmful. I want to rescue from that. But also, maybe in your apologetics, who, who hasn't? I mean, you're coming to this church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pray that you are, you're looking for opportunities for evangelism in the workplace. You, you don't abide by the ra rainbow lanyard rules they give to you, right? And you'll get the question, oh, okay, you're against homosexuality. Well, I see you wearing mixed cloths and eating shellfish. Point for the pagan. All right? They're winning now. They just got you. 
The Bible says, yes, homosexuality is wrong, but in the very next verse or the next chapter, it'll say that you shouldn't wear mixed fabrics or, or sow your field with the different seeds. What now, Christian? And, and maybe that's a, that's a rear naked choke on you and you're about to tap and you don't know what to do. Here's the very simple answer. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as a human who is not an Israelite, before the Lord Jesus in the land of Israel, that's not binding. But do I see homosexuality or adultery or whatever else it may be that you're arguing brought up by Jesus, brought up by the apostles, brought up and applied all over Scripture? Absolutely we do. And therefore, we see the connection of it to the moral law, not merely the judicial and ceremonial law. So, so you can see how practical this becomes, how soul-winning this becomes to understand the law because Paul himself said in 1 Timothy, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We do damage to the church, other people's consciences, our own assurance, if we use the law of God unlawfully. <clears throat> so, this is the threefold division of the law of God, but we can also understand and ought to also understand the dynamics of God's law. Before we get to the exposition of the Ten Commandments in its fullness, we need to understand how God's law was meant to be used. What is the dynamic of this law? And I will say, first of all, the law of God and the Ten Commandments, let's, let's now focus in on the Ten Commandments because that's, first of all, where we're going in the next few weeks. But it's also the law that is binding on us still. It is that perpetual law of God. The law of God has a dynamic that it is meant to be understood in a way that is internal and external. That is, that it applies to your behavior and to your actions. Uh, rather, to your heart's inclinations, I meant to say. Your thoughts, your proclivities, your imaginations, even those are bound up in the law of God. Now, now we don't see man's laws except for in the most tyrannical kind of abusive system in the, in the world today. We don't see human laws, man-made laws, applying to what you're allowed to think. We're getting there, okay? I think, the, I think the, the lefties have that in plan, but just not yet. It's a ridiculous thing for man to try and do because all we can do is control the, and, and limit the, the, the behavior of society. But God's law goes deeper. We see Jesus pick this up. When he's preaching his, his sermon on the mount, he's preaching like Moses on a mountain after coming out of the wilderness for 40 days, right? This is, this is Jesus, and he applies to them the law of God in ways they've never heard it done before. And they say, you've heard it said, don't kill, don't murder. Not a bad law. But I'm telling you that the deeper meaning and conception of that law is that if you're thinking hatefully and willing harm upon other people, even if your hand doesn't raise against them, you are guilty before God of that law, of breaking that law. So we see that from God's point of view, the law leaves no escapees. Leaves none of us. It goes so deep as to not just our behavior, but also our heart. There's a, there's a further degree, though. The dynamic of God's law is also, secondly, that it is double-edged. The law of God is double-edged. That is, that it is both positive and negative. That where we see a commandment, let's pick up murder again, where it is a negative commandment saying, do not murder... We ought to understand that embedded in that command is also the equal and opposite positive, 
to promote and protect other people's lives in as much as it is possible and lawful. So, so, so that when you come to a law like that, and, and maybe this is you, you're, you're, you're not a Christian and you would save yourself, or you call yourself a Christian, but, but basically your thought is that you're better than other people because you've obeyed more of the law of God. Let's just put that to the test. How many people would say, well, I've never murdered anybody? We go, all right, so here's the absolute end of the command, not to murder. You haven't done that one degree. Have you maybe committed the other 99%? Half of which is actively committing a sin. Sometimes, though, we break the law by omitting to fulfill its perfection. So it's not as if we're breaking a glass. It's as if we're not filling it up to the brim. So maybe you've never murdered, but have you hated? Have you hoped someone to die? Have you wished that they would come under harm? Or maybe it's not even that bad. Have you ever seen somebody's life, reputation, or body in harm and failed to do something to defend their life, person, and reputation, whether they're your enemy or your friend? All of this is actually encompassed, uh, 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 wrapped up in what the law speaks of. It is positive and it is negative. It might command something positive, but by implication, it, it commands against all negatives of it. If it commands a negative, it'll, it assumes also all of the positives. Thirdly, it is also categorical. Biblical scholars, Jewish scholars, they, they study the law of God and they understand that in his own application of it, and the way we're supposed to understand the law of God is that it is categorical. In other words, there's nothing in human experience that the law of God doesn't ultimately speak to. Everything is included because by listing the, the categories of sins in the Ten Commandments that it, that it commands, it is not limited only to that sin, but every other category of uh, every other sin which falls under its broader category. We might think of adultery and say, well, you can't commit adultery if you don't get married, so it's just good old-fashioned fornication. It's okay. And we say that is a categorical sin. That we see the apostles and we see Jesus and we see the way that God God treats that kind of law in the Old Testament, he sees that in that law is embedded all kinds of prohibitions of sexual sin or, or stealing. And we say, well, I didn't rob the guy. He dropped it. I picked it up. I, I, I gave him bad advice that would end up profiting me. And we say all of those ways of, 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 of sinning are underneath the category of that law. And here's where that hits the ground. God's law in Israel and as it applies today, and as God will judge us on judgment day if we're outside of Jesus... God's law is impossible to loophole. It's impossible to loophole and get off on a technicality because there's no category of sin that it doesn't ultimately speak to, even if it doesn't say so explicitly. And so it's meant to be applied in a broad, sweeping way. We might say, well, look, in the law against coveting, it's directed at men and says they ought not covet their neighbor's goods or their neighbor's wife. Well, I'm a wife. I'm not coveting my neighbor's husband or my, I mean my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's goods. I'm coveting my neighbor's wife's goods. 
uncovering my neighbors. You know, it says over here not to, not to do this, and it's addressed to the men, but, but as a woman or as a child, or if I can loophole around it, and we just understand that the law of God is not meant to be dealt with that way. That's how we, with our, with our sinful little inner lawyer, we're always acting that way. How can, I, how can I sneak under this? How can I creep under that law over there or sneak over the barbed wire of God's law? And it ought not, but we see this in our society. We see this in every man-made society that there is a, they're trying to do what only God's law can do. They're trying to, con- to, to control people instead of revive people. And so law comes down and there's just a thousand different legislations trying to get one good thing done. Right? Don't use your phone while you're driving. Let's just pick up that one whether we agree with it or not and we do it or not. I don't know. But to just try and get this one thing done by the citizenship of a nation, the, 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 the state will come up with all kinds of incentives, br- uh, uh, laws, rules, and, the, and they will surround it with all of these types of ways. Not an evil thing in itself, but the point is that man's law is embedded with a powerlessness that God's law is not. God simply says, look after your neighbor. How does that apply? Think of it all. God will hold you to account because he just commanded a plethora of sins to be avoided in that one phrase. So God's law is, is categorical. It is immune to loopholing in God's wisdom. And then lastly, we can say that God's law is fulfilled in love. God's law. I know we're in the Old Testament and you might think, well, this is a, this is a New Testament revelation. No, no. No, God's law was always the epitome of love. God's law was always the way to fulfill love towards other people. God's law was always the the most perfect way to show love. And if you loved your neighbor, you would always be obeying the law towards them. We see this picked up in the New Testament and taught explicitly by Jesus and by Paul. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But then he says, on these two laws depend all the law and the prophets. So he's not saying we Christians will have a better way, just love. He's saying, let me tell you the the, the way to understand the law way from back when it was first given. It was always hanging on the two threads of loving God and loving neighbor. We even see Paul bring it up on a slightly different angle in chapter 13 of Romans. All the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. It's as if he says, look look at yourselves arguing about who's overstepping or understepping or shorthanding each of the little tiny incremental lines of God's laws. Let me ask you, Christians, are you even trying to love each other? Because God's law will step in when we fail to love each other. It will define for us what true love is. We don't get to define that ourselves. But from the heart, are you actively trying to love one another? That's the the guiding principle for the Christians. So in all these ways, I want to ask you, how does the law of God find you? Find you. Now, when you realize it's it's a 10-step sort of thing, it's 10 things that God says, and and I'll probably be able to dodge those 10 bullets. I might be able to get myself around them, and, and maybe, if not perfect, I'll get to the end better than most other people. But when you recognize that this law of God looks not just at your outward behavior, 
or your own report of your outward behavior, but at every inclination and thought and motivation of your heart, where does it leave you standing before a holy God? When you realize that this law is not just 10 things you should or shouldn't do, but encapsulated in it is all kinds of ways to fall short of it or accidentally step over it, this law leaves no one getting away from its condemnation. When you realize that this is, this is a categorical law, and, and you might have something that isn't explicitly listed in the Bible, and I'm not sure that's a congratulations moment. You've invented another kind of sin that is not even written. That, that's not a good thing. But even then, it's still covered by God's law. When you realize that there is not a single thing you've ever done which will not on judgment day, be pointed back to one of the laws of God and says, here's where you failed. Poured yourself a cup of coffee in the morning? Did you do it to the utmost of your ability, to the glory of God? Fail. And then when we realize what all else fails, if you, if you try and pretend you'd make it through all that, the law comes to us and says, did you perfectly, with every ounce of your mind, your soul, your strength, Every ounce of you, did you love God perfectly above all else? And, and did your neighbors know, see in you, did they know and see a perfect love of sacrifice and service to them? Not a single one of us will be able to stand before God's perfect, intricate, infinite, internal, external law and ever be found anything other than judged, condemned, and deserving of hell. This is God's law. It's impossible to escape. It is heavy, but it points us to Jesus. Where every single person falls short because of the absolute condemnation of the law in every category and every ounce of your being, Jesus comes down in the person of God, in the person of Jesus, both God and man, and lives a life how unfathomable this is for our experience to even comprehend. That every moment of his day was ticking off every commandment in every degree with full breadth, height, and width, and depth. He didn't, with a single cell, with a single fraction of a second of motivation, did he do anything other than perfectly love God, perfectly love man, in every category, positive and negative, external and internal. This is our undefiled, pure, perfect Savior, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And he didn't come down to show himself. He didn't come down to, to simply be worshipped, but he came down being the perfect one, to die for us and substitute the unrighteous for the righteous so that everybody who recognizes that before God and his law, you are condemned. In Jesus, there is salvation. In Jesus, there is eternal life. And when we recognize the depth of our sin, then we recognize the fullness of the breadth of the salvation that there is in Jesus. Imagine the power of his blood to cleanse us from all of these kinds of sins. Imagine the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you and I can be made sons and daughters in God's kingdom forever. That's the good news you need to embrace today if you have not before. Your life stands in the balance. Your eternal soul is already condemned and going to hell. 
and can be saved, rescued, and redeemed if you would just take seriously your problem and just recognize the reality of God's love in Jesus Christ and embrace him by faith and say, Jesus, thank you. Please give me everything you've promised. Let's pray. God, in your law, there is wisdom. In your law, there is a light. There is there is beauty, there is manifold treasures, and we love to read it. We, we, we disagree with the antinomians, the legalists, and the, the liberals of our day that say that your law is negative. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It is righteous. It is holy and good. That's why it condemns us. That's why it is so unattainable to the, to the likes of sinful people. That's why we attempted to hate it, is because it condemns every one of us in everything we do. But Lord God, as long as it does not condemn us, as long as we are in Jesus, then we can go to your law and see wisdom, and we do so. But Father God, as we continue our study and as we look at the gospel through the lens of, of the law and look at the law through the lens of the gospel, I ask that you would make us assess ourselves like the Israelites standing at the bottom of the mountain while your voice booms in the giving of your law, would you also draw us to ask ourselves, am I mistaken? Have I truly entered into covenant with this God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or am I fooling myself? Father God, please, would you, would you help us to assess ourselves by the law? Would you help us to assess our lives by, by our obedience? But then for every look we look at ourselves, look, look all the more to Jesus. And look to him for rescue and forgiveness and, and adoption and righteousness and sanctification. Father God, I ask that you would make us a holy people who love your law. But to those who are, who are unsaved, even if they're trying to obey your law as much as they can, if they think that's how they can be made righteous, or if they're the type of sinner that is running from your law and trying to suppress the law and try and run away from you, then God, would you bring them back? Would you drop them to their knees? Would you convict their heart, point them to Jesus, and give them faith in the Savior today? We want to glorify you in all that we are and all that we do. May you enable us to do so, O oh God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.